Welcome to Crucial Conversations, a series of conversations with various guests to engage in difficult subjects. This series is coming to you from Central Christian Church in downtown Indianapolis. This month's series is on anti-racism. Our focus is not on interpersonal violence of racism, but systemic racism that is rooted in our institutions, including the church. Please join us each week on Thursdays when we release new episodes. Welcome to Central Christian Church, Crucial Conversation. I am Pastor Luis, and uh, we are excited. Uh, we have a wonderful guest today, a good friend of mine, Jessica Louise, from Indies 10, Black Lives Matter. Uh, Jessica and I have known each other for uh, quite some time. Uh, we've uh, seen other countries together, uh, specifically Mexico. Um, we went on a, on a trip uh, dealing with immigration, so I'm really glad uh, that she is with us today. Uh, so welcome, Jessica, to this, uh, to this space. Thanks for having me, Courtney. So um, a few years, about a year ago uh, in March, uh, Central Christian Church uh, got a grant, and we started working um, uh, as um, uh, started working towards um, anti-racism, uh, but not anti-racism in the sense of interpersonal violence, um, which whenever we hear the word um, uh, anti-racism, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. Uh, but we started working with a, a, a company called Crossroads who deals with um, um, anti-racism training, but also helping churches and organizations become anti-racist institutions. Um, so in that process, uh, we are starting, uh, we've had these conversations, we've had trainings, and we are trying not just as a staff and a, a team uh, working at becoming an anti-racist uh, institution, but how do we share that information with our congregation, help them through those same steps that we are going through, and how do we lead people through these particular times? Um, so in that process, we have been trying to connect with uh, voices, uh, people who are a part of institutions who are working at combating anti-racism so that we can be anti-racist uh, society. Um, and so uh, we've had conversation with the general minister and president of the Disciples of Christ, Terry Hort Owens, and now uh, we're going to be having a conversation with you. And so um, I'm, I'm excited uh, that you are with us this morning. And so Jess, uh, tell me, tell me, for those who don't know you, because I could spend hours uh, speaking about you, uh, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you come from. Okay, so I am Jessica Louise. Uh, most people know me as an organizer with Indy 10 Black Lives Matter. Um, I have, I was born and raised in Indianapolis. Um, like Louise said, he and I met, I think it was like over a decade ago. Uh, we met through a disciples program that was put on, I think by Church Extension and the Reconciliation Ministry at the time that was seeking to partner young adults who had an interest in advocacy and community activism um, and kind of immerse them in each other's cultures as well as get to know about um, some of the inequities that are faced by some of our global community members. So that kind of kicked off um, my active activism. 
Um, from there, served the disciples in a variety of ways, even worked for the general ministries um, for a few years. Um, and then I got connected to Indy 10, I would say about six or seven years ago. Uh, wasn't formally a part of it at that time, but supported their work, collaborated with them on a lot of things that they were doing, um, especially after their group. Um, and I returned from Ferguson, Missouri. And so uh, I think that's a great segue. So that's so it, you had been connected with them for some time, um, but it was um, the events of Michael Brown in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, that got you connected um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, that correct? Right, so I think before um, I was more of like um, activists, I would support just a variety of things, but didn't really have an understanding of like the theories behind them. Um, so supported immigration reform, supported um, police reform, um, also did anti-racism and pro-reconciliation relationship building within the Disciples of Christ. Um, did, you know, sex health education, comprehensive sex education, just kind of a catch-all. Um, and then the events of, there were, there were two things that kind of motive, prompted me to get connected to um, BLM. One was um, the shooting death of Trayvon Martin in Florida by George Zimmerman. And I remember that was interesting because I was serving as an adult leader um, with the General Youth Council for the Disciples of Christ at the time. So I actually um, had to preach one Sunday. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what I'm gonna talk about. I don't really understand the process of preaching. All I know is that like, I have 500 kids, you know, as well as these uh, youth leaders who are in my care and other adult leaders care. And all I can think about is what has happened to this child and the fact that his killer will likely go free. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, you know, with Mike Brown happening, decided to participate in the Freedom Rides to Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and what was unique about that for me was that not only were we going there to kind of convene with other people um, nationally and even internationally who were involved in community activism in their own communities, but also receiving training. And I think that that was essential to the work that we do now, learning how to be principled in the work, learning how to crowdfund if you need be, learning how to utilize social media, um, learning how to network and learning how to use those things to amplify the message of Black Lives Matter. So uh, Indy, uh, Indy 10, BL, BLM has been uh, an active voice uh, throughout Indianapolis uh, and active uh, in many different ways. Uh, but this past summer, um, we've we seen them in several uh, different capacities. Um, how do you understand um, uh, Indy 10's um, role in addressing systematic racism in Indianapolis? I think that we see ourselves as leaders and also as supporters. Um, so on the one hand, uh, we have a lot of resources as far as, you know, dismantling these systems of oppression that marginalized communities of color face. 
Uh, we also recognize that, you know, as we grow in our work, that there are people who also need to pick up the work and who have a desire to pick up the work. So making sure that we're, you know, offering our social capital and our resources to people. We have a group of young adults um, that we work with currently, and they kind of emerged organically following the shooting death of Drajan Reed in Indianapolis. Um, so there's about I want to say 10 to 13 of them that emerged and they expressed the desire to kind of, you know, move this forward and wanting to know what activism looks like behind the scenes. So we do a little bit of everything. We crowdfund for uh, people who are facing crisis. We keep people safe um, by establishing safe havens for folks who are in certain areas who are uncertain about their level of safety. Um, we, you know, amplify Black businesses and uh, resources for communities of color. We also have a really intense policy team um, that, you know, follows closely what is happening in our state and especially um, with the city council that we have and tracks those things and encourages public pressure in order to affect change. So we, we're involved in a lot of things and it's, it's exciting and exhausting at the same time. <laughs> so when, when you mention a policy team, uh, explain that to me a little bit because I don't, I don't necessarily know what that means. Is that a, a, a group of people who are uh, looking at um, what the city council and what our city is doing as far as policies and laws? And uh, re I mean, how, how does that work? Sure. So yeah, we have, um, so of course our, our core group, which is, we don't really like to speak in like hierarchical terms, but just for the sake of understanding. So our core group of leadership is involved. Um, and that's the co-founders of ND10, Kyra and Leah, myself, and then um, our friend, Michelle. And then we also have other people um, who have a desire to see equity be formed in communities of color, um, but might not necessarily engage direct action or other things that we do in order to push um, certain things forward. So we collaborate and we look closely at policies that are um, being attempted to be passed in Indianapolis and also statewide. One of the things in Indianapolis that we were able to be successful about is one of our Republican city council members um, attempted to file a proposal or have a proposal be heard that ultimately would criminalize people for serving our population that's experiencing homelessness. So that could be anyone from church groups to, you know, anybody who just decides that maybe they have some extra funds or extra resources and puts together grab bags for people who are living outside or who don't have housing of their own. So that was able to be shut down. Um, another thing that we worked on statewide was uh, we found that um, they are trying to criminalize people really who are demonstrating. It's almost as if the lawmakers in our state looked at what happened last summer and that they have now drafted proposals in order to prevent it from happening again. And while I can understand some of the anxiety around the happenings of um, last summer's uprising, it also speaks to the necessity of equity in our communities. So we're tracking bills um, that would strip benefits from people who have been charged with rioting. We're also tracking bills 
that would um, empower people who are facing eviction to be legally represented in court. Um, and all of those things, we're trying to make sure that it ties back to our citywide demands. One of our demands um, for the city that's not necessarily tied to a victim of police brutality is to end cash bail. So one of the things that we were working on was um, uh, something that was proposed by a state lawmaker that was seeking to make uh, charitable organizations who provided money towards people who were still incarcerated because they could not afford bail. They were, they were trying to, to nullify that. So that thankfully did not get a hearing, but we had to call on a lot of resources that we had, had to speak to legal representative groups. We had to reach out to state lawmakers who would be um, sympathetic to um, that happening. And we also reached out to um, a local organization that specifically does that work to help us. I just listening to you, I can see why you say that it is rewarding and exhausting at the same time. Um, it is a uh, never ending uphill climb uh, when dealing with this, uh, with this issue. You know, I've seen you several times um, uh, in front of lawmakers and our council talking about uh, different policies and different things. And this past summer, uh, we started hearing um, uh, th through the movement um, and in many different circles uh, the, the, the phrase, uh, defund the police. Um, and that's one of those things in which people love to uh, point and say, you know what, um, uh, Black Lives Matter, those individuals who are saying that don't know what they're, they're, they're saying, don't know what they're talking, we're going to be unsafe uh, because of that. And I feel that many people don't truly understand what that means. Um, and so uh, I recall you, uh, well, I think you were talking uh, about uh, police funding and you went there, you had your, your shirt on and said defund the police. So um, Jessica, what does it mean to defund the police? Sure. So for other people, it means um, simply reducing the police budget to reallocate it for critical community resources. For us, ultimately, we see it as a vehicle to abolition. Um, as students, practitioners, and facilitators of abolition, it is our duty to carry that forward. And we know that the prison industrial complex only perpetuates harm. It does not seek to you know, establish justice or equity in communities, because if it did, it would not be privatized and commodified. We wouldn't see people who are incarcerated um, facing just disproportionate injustice inside of that system simply as a means of punishment. So for us, uh, we are behind gradually reducing the police and its supports budgets until it reaches zero, but also reallocating those funds into community sourced and community based entities. One of the things that we are working on is a mental health task force that's going to be made up of mental health practitioners who can respond to crisis calls where the police are not trained or equipped to do so. Um, that was brought about following the death of Eleanor Northington, who was a middle-aged black woman who was in crisis and sought help at a church. And when the police responded to it and when everything was said and done, she was left dead. So we know that there are people who are um, better equipped to deal with those things because they are studied, they are teached, they are licensed, um, and there are people who have a vested interest and live in the communities that they're serving. 
So ultimately, when we say defund the police, um, and especially defund IMPD, we want to see those dollars taken from this entity who historically and presently has a um, duty of perpetuating harm in our communities and seeing that used to help heal some of those voids. Yeah, and so some of the some of the argument uh, about that is, you know, um, Indianapolis has had a high crime rate and had high murder rate for uh, several years, and the thought is, hey, more police will make our streets safer. Uh, the increase of police uh, has happened, but violence and uh, these things continue. So, um, if the answer isn't more police, then what is the particular answer? Um, and in our uh, lower income communities, um, we noticed that uh, there are a lot of different ways in which we can address uh, some of those issues. Um, it sounds, and I can't recall, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and I'm not sure uh, what state was doing this, uh, but it was talking about um, how they um, took away 20% um, of the police's budget. Um, and in taking away 20% of the police's budget, they, it was for dealing with 2% of a specific issue, which was like the example you gave. And because of that, oh no, sorry, 2% to, to help out 20%. I, numbers mix me, but regardless, what they noticed was they were able to address some of the mental health issues in the area because they were having people who were trained to those particular things. Um, like, your, like yourself, I feel like um, uh, our, our uh, police are not um, trained to handle certain situations, so why are we putting that responsibility on them, right? Um, which leads us to a bigger question, right? So if, 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 we are, if we're going to address some of these systematic issues uh, that are affecting the communities here in Indianapolis, uh, what can... Um, uh, churches like Central Christian Church and others do to support the work um, that Indie Black Lives Matter 10 is, is working at? Sure. Um, so I always tell people that we need resources. And so if that is skill, if that is finances, um, if that is supporting or amplifying any of the work that we do, then it's critical to the work that we do. Um, one of the things that we were successful with is partnering with um, a couple of our members partnered with Indie Pride and successfully um, navigated them through divesting from using the police for their events, which is huge because Indie Pride each summer is a multi-million dollar event. So having them collaborate with black female, um, with black femme or organizers, and for them to say, we hear what you're saying, we understand the historical reference of pride, and because of it, it is our duty not to utilize this source that is historically and presently harmful, is huge. Um, we would love for churches to become more involved with speaking with their congregants and having candid conversations and also measurables on how to reduce police presence in their neighborhoods. If that means setting up a community watch with um, community members, then that could be something. Uh, one of our uh, sister chapters 
chapters in, I believe it's uh, either DC or Patterson, New Jersey, has set up what's called a cop watch. So training people on, if you do encounter the police, here is what you should do so that you can, you know, engage that situation safely, but also so that there can be a record of um, conduct. Churches can host websites. They can pay fees for us to receive trainings um, and uh, you know, offer to sponsor us. One of the things that we relied on churches this past summer that was a great help to us was helping us to establish safe space during the demonstrations. So some people just wanted to go out, have their voice be heard and go home, which they are completely entitled to. So the churches played a critical role in being an, an obvious and visible safe space for people who needed a break from demonstrations to be able to gather either to receive um, respite or to receive medical care or even spiritual care if needed because it's spiritually exhausting having to demonstrate and put your body on the line each day. Uh, we would also encourage churches to dig deeper into their theology and to find ways that their theology can meet social justice. I think that's one of the things that I wrestled with um, with the disciples that even though we establish a table where all are welcome, um, who are we holding space for? You know, it's like, are we holding space for people to continue to harm others simply so that we can say that we are welcoming to all and that all are welcome at God's table? Or are we recognizing that by holding the door open for harm to be perpetuated and sustained, that we are marking ourselves as unsafe spaces? Um, so yeah, uh, definitely reading resources and making sure that that theological text is being mirrored in praxis and that it's not just being, you know, I'm going to seminary, I'm preaching, I'm not really engaging my community outside of that. Asada Shakur said famously that she didn't want to just stay in the books because that's not where things are happening. You have to be out in the street and you have to be out in your community to understand the true impact of the police and the, their state backing on our communities. You bring up uh, an interesting point there. Uh, you and I are both um, brought up in the church, right? And uh, I've always noticed that individuals who are brought up in the church and may uh, have had experiences uh, lead them to work towards the same thing in different ways. Um, I don't want to make an assumption. However, why do you think that um, the generation of... Uh, individuals who are participating in movements like Black Lives Matter have stopped doing it through the church and rather through other organizations. Has something happened along the way in which um, the church has, in your opinion, maybe, I mean, what has happened that, where's the disconnect, you think, um, that people have decided, you know what, this is no longer the vehicle um, uh, I'm going to use in order to combat this, I'm, I'm going to move in this direction. Sure. Um, so I think that that's two pronged. One is that, you know, there is spiritual support, but that that spiritual support is uh, more like a silent partner, which is favorable. So we don't have to worry about the politics of, you know, saying, hey, I spoke with Central Christian Church today and Louise said that they're ready to knock if you buck if they need to, you know, because all of your congregants might not be there. Um, so we appreciate the silent partnership. But in addition to that, I think the generational divide is um, an imbalance in who has access to resources. So if we look at historically what our caregivers, um, their age and what they had to 
tolerate and what that meant as far as them being able to survive and how that brought them to the point that they are now. And then for us, a lot of us were coming out of college, you know, around 2008 when everything started to crash and burn. So we're already used to uncertainties with our finances. We have crippling student loan debt. Um, we don't have access to health insurance in the ways that our caregivers or their caregivers had. And then on top of that, um, we, you know, have a vested political interest in what's happening because we see in real time how it's affecting us. So uh, it's, 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 it's something. I can't even, you know, it's, it's, it's something. And so do you think that the, the church um, and um, Black Lives Matter can coexist in working towards um, uh, becoming, uh, working towards being an anti-racist society? I think that there is coexistence possible. I think that people have different ministries and different ways of acting out what they see their charge to activism being. Um, for me, I'm not as dedicated to anti-racism work as I once was because I look at that as allies work. In my black queer body, I don't consider it to be my duty to take emotional labor and to devote that to white people or other people of historical and present privilege to help them dismantle and combat their internalized privilege. I would rather use that energy towards amplifying and uplifting my community and empowering the people that I'm in community with. Now, that doesn't mean that this work isn't valid or that it's not needed. It's just that I don't have to carry that burden in my black body. There are people who are willing, able, ready, practiced, and principled enough to carry that forward. And when needed, they can call on black radicals and black revolutionaries to come and be accountability partners to come and validate or underscore some of the work that they're doing. But I think in order for us to coexist that we need to be clear about who has what role and that when those roles are established and when they're committed to, that's when we're going to see change. I wouldn't expect somebody from Black Lives Matter to come to y'all's church and preach, especially if that is not their religious background, you know? But also there's room for the church to kind of overlap into some of the work that we're doing. So I think coexist is probably a good way to put it, that everyone has their role and that we can assist each other so that the load and the burden isn't too heavy to bear. You know, you, you bring up uh, um, just a wonderful point that um, uh, I think the conversations that I've been having hasn't been brought up, right? Uh, when you talk about people of color and you talk about uh, institutions that may be predominantly white, the thought is um, if you were to work towards being anti-racism, the emotional toll and energy it takes would not allow you to uplift and do the things that you want to do. So you, so as I hear you say, you have to separate it, right? Um, which, which um, for me, as I as I listen, must must be hard and difficult, right? Um, especially if you have friends and uh, communities um, uh, that are working towards those, right? So it's almost like a, a, a in a sense of violent separation. I, I have to just, you have to ex, not, you just have to push to the side. But at the same time, I think what I hear in you is we can exist parallel to each other, right? 
as you are working, I am working. And there may be a point where our roads are going to converge and it should converge, right? If we're going towards the same, same direction. So direction is upliftering uh, people of color, black communities. Uh, what, you're do what I'm doing and others are doing is um, uh, working towards breaking down racism, anti-racism society. And these things need to meet, right? And when we meet, we're going to be at a mutual ground of understanding. We cannot meet at that mutual ground because you haven't got there yet. So it almost feels like at times, you know, yourself and others in the movement are going uh, much further ahead um, and just waiting for others to get there, right? Because that's the only way, right? Uh, yeah. You know, for uh, not only for um, physical for survival, but what I hear from you a lot in many different ways, I, I hear a lot of... Uh, just also emotional, right? Emotional and spiritual survival, right? Like we cannot separate those two, right? We have, we have only been dealing with the physical burden of being black and brown in our communities. And it's important that that's one aspect, but what I hear from you is yes, uh, but the, here are some other areas that are just as important to our life and our, and our moving forward. So, wow. I am, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, that, that really has um, made me think about some questions I'm gonna ask some of our other guests, right? Uh, that whole parallel of walking together. I really, I really appreciate that, Jessica. I mean, that's just, that's just amazing. Yeah, and it's necessary. I mean, you think about, I think, you know, when I was coming up in The Disciples and they talked a lot about spiritual gifts and it's, it's not on you to try to measure yourself by someone else's spiritual gift. So if I've been given a radical imagination and the determination to actualize those things and someone is not yet there, I can use my gift to, you know, make it public and make it known and make it accessible what these things are and why it's necessary. But then it's on the other person to pick it up and to internalize it and to do something with it. So there's a role either way, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary. So how has the... Um... How has the, the, the black church been supportive of, of you and what you have been doing? Do you feel like you've had that support from the black church? You, you're smiling right now. Because <laughs> you're trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> um, I'll say this. No, it's, I... it's, like you say, it's accountability, right? It's accountability, it is, right? It is accountability. Right. It is accountability. So on the one hand, um, I'll, I'll start with this. There are black uh, spiritual practitioners who have been consistent in supporting this work and me personally um, since Drejan Reed was shot and killed in May of 2020. I feel conflicted about calling on Black churches to do more because I think that that opens us up into who has access to what and why and what type of support and resources Black churches have and what that means as far as where our church as a denomination, as a state and as a city, where it stands and who is able to get what. Um, black churches, unfortunately, don't have the luxury of being as radical as they'd like, because for us, well, for them, it may be a means of survival. You know, if you're in survival mode, you're not able to lend social equity or social capital to something that could alienate you from resources that you need in order to go 
day to day. On the other hand, if we look at, there just has to be some meeting of theory and praxis. So what does it mean if we get on social media, if we get into the pulpit and we preach radical theory, we preach radical theology, we preach feminist and womanist theology, and we have female, you know, representation and femme representation in the general ministries, but that that doesn't translate locally, right? So it can be it can be disappointing. Um, there were, like I said, I worked for the disciples for several years, for several years in one of the general ministries. I was the only black in-house employee at one of the general ministries at the Disciples Center for several years. So I'm very well versed in black leadership in the disciples. I think especially when you see someone who was formerly aligned with the disciples and who has even served in leadership within the disciples. Um, and there's no expression of support that it can be disappointing, but also that's not something that I really internalize. I also understand that I have more of a radical stance than a lot of people are comfortable with. So to align with me and my radical stance could be the difference between some folks having a job or not, you know? And it's, I've had to learn to not center myself in this movement which is tough because you know I'm good for being like uh that's wrong <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> you know I've had to I've had to kind of prioritize okay not getting it here but am getting it here so let me focus my energy here yeah yeah and, and it goes back to what you said when you're in when you're a part of that institution where do you want to spend your energy in right um, and if you're constantly the person raising your hand and pointing towards, hey, that needs to change, that needs to change, uh, it can become awfully tiring. But I think you do make a good point about uh, the church as a whole. And I, and I just think about, um, you know, especially in minority communities, uh, and we see this within the Hispanic church as well, we have so many of our leaders who are predominantly male, right? Um, and so when you have you know, males uh, driving these contexts and pushing these things and making these connections. Um, we often forget about uh, the predominant powerful voices within the church, which have, have in, in my community, have always been women, right? You may have had, a, you may have had a, a male pastor, but, you know, the church is run by the women in the church, right? So why isn't it in, uh, when we make these connections, we have to have those uh, those, you know, those feminine voices out in the front because, you know, they have been, they have been leading for so long. So, um, yeah, again, I didn't ask that to get you in trouble, but that also will get us down. I'm used to it. <laughs> you know, that, that, that will get us down a way different, uh, different topic for another time. Um, because I think there's so much that you and I can continue to, uh, be working on in the parallel, right? So how do we, how do I get, how do I get this side, um, you know, to where you're going? And you know what? You, you have presented me a very good um, internalized question for my own future, right? Is how long do I still want to stay uh, within a predominantly white institution uh, and spend my energy in helping um, dismantle and break down these things when I can be um, 
uplifting people within my own community. So I appreciate the conversation today. You have, uh, uh, you always, um, you always come, you know, you always provide, uh, Jess. Uh, you you bring it every time. I really appreciate it. So, <laughs> you know, I try to. <laughs> uh, once again, thank you so much, Jessica Louise. Uh, we want to thank her for her time today. Uh, we want to thank her for her spirit and leadership within Indy Ten Black Lives Matter. And um, uh, I hope to bring you into uh, other conversations in the future. Thank you so much, Jess. Of course, Fran. Thanks for having me. To freedom. All right. God bless. <laughs>